0: If you've got your Bibles, I'm going to invite you to go to Luke 2. We are going to pick up today where we left off last week. Remember, the the shepherds went off uh, to Bethlehem to see the the Christ child and... uh, it was, it was exciting, and there, there we were, all standing at the manger, watching and reflecting and pondering with the shepherds and the angels and, and all that good stuff. And so we're going to pick up the Christmas story today, uh, one verse later where we dropped off last week. And when I use the word story... For me, that sounds a little bit uh, odd to call the Christmas story a story because oftentimes when we think about a story, we think about a fairy tale like uh, The Brothers Grimm or something like that. Once upon a time, right? Or maybe we think of uh, a Disney story uh, like The Little Mermaid or maybe we think about a story, a, a Lucas film in a galaxy far, far away, right? This is kind of the imagery that comes to our minds with a story, but this is a truly a story for sure. But this is so much more than a story, this is a story that actually happened, and so, uh, and it's a unique story, um, that we look at. Uh, it's uh, seven hundred and seventy three three, six hundred and ninety two words, so it's a long story. It's a story with 66 different books. Sometimes we call them letters or writings. There are 40 different authors to this story. This story was written on three different continents in three different languages. And the story takes place or was written over the course of 1,500 years. So it's a very unusual and unique story. And the story was written by lots of different unique authors, farmers, fishermen, poets, prophets, kings, generals. So lots of different backgrounds of these writers. Written in caves, palaces, prisons, lots of different locations. And in this story, there's history that can be historically verified. There is science that can be scientifically proven. Uh, It's a story that uh, talks about laws and and poetry, gospels, epistles, uh, lots going on in the story. And of course, the story ends with a grand finale. But for all the kind of unique components to the story, we look at this story, God's story, as one story. This is really God's story. One author, and this is why we call it the word of God. And so we believe that God used, inspired through the Holy Spirit, lots of different people, lots of different places, lots of different backgrounds, lots of different genre. But at the end of the day, this is one story and God is the author of this story. It is truly God's story because this story invites us to understand the heart and the mind of God, who God is. It's God telling us, revealing himself to us. And when we understand God's story, it invites us to understand our story, how we fit in this world our purpose, our place in this world. And so this is really what uh, scripture is all about. And Jesus, of course, is at the center of the story. And I think when we understand God's story, it helps us to look around at the chaos of the world and be reminded every single day, time and time again when we go back to God's word, that God still has the whole world in his hands. We call this the sovereignty of God. That even though there's chaos and sin and brokenness in your life and in my life, and we see it in the community and all around the world, God's story reminds us that he, he's still in control. He's still got uh, the whole world in his hands. And so this morning we're going to pick up uh, with the story of uh, Simeon. And because Simeon is so grounded and rooted in God's story, he is able to live his life just filled with peace. And he exudes this joy. Um, this we're going to uh, unpack this morning. So if you're in Luke 2, I'm going to invite us to, to bow our heads. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your story. This story that is like no other. And God, you invite us to open your story, to open your word to read it chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and and look at the people, look at the characters, and God, you invite us into your story. So Lord, as we look at the life of Simeon this morning, may the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for you are indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, as we look at the Christmas story uh, and the characters of Christmas uh, year after year, of course, there are the primary characters. Baby Jesus is there, right? Every year. Seems like we talk about baby Jesus every year at Christmas time. And, and there's Mary and Joseph. And then there's the secondary characters of the Christmas story, the, the shepherds, the angels, uh, the, the wise men or the magi. And even like the innkeeper, we've kind of got these secondary characters of the story that we talk about regularly. Then there's even the lesser characters of the Christmas story. That would be the sheep, the lambs. A couple weeks ago, we had some lambs here that kind of stole the show, which was pretty fun. And we had a donkey. And we just talk about these uh, characters, even these lesser characters, year after year. But there's an even lesser known character, even below the donkey and the sheep. But I think his story is really important because I think the life of Simeon captures the essence of Christmas, what Christmas is truly all about. A man who was waiting, who was expecting, who was hopeful for God to come into the world to rescue and save his people again. And I think it's so interesting, this this obscure guy, and scripture doesn't talk a lot about Simeon. But he's hopeful, he's open, and he's waiting, and he's watching. And I think about Caesar in Rome, the most important person born on this day, Jesus Christ, and Caesar in Rome is completely unaware. The Roman Senate has no idea that the Messiah has come. I think about all the other political leaders of the day, the, the philosophers in Athens. They just It kind of goes way over their head that Jesus has come, God has come to earth. Even the Jewish leaders, they're too apathetic. They've stopped watching and waiting for the Messiah. And there's King Herod, the ruler in that area, and he's just too paranoid. He, he, he doesn't want to have anything to do with any new king showing up on the scene. But not Simeon. Of all the characters in the Christmas story, there's Simeon waiting and watching, open and hoping. So let's pick it up with Luke 2.21. On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise the child, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he was conceived. Now this idea of circumcision goes back to Abraham. Eight days, and this was the Jewish custom, was to to circumcise uh, any Jewish person uh, eight eight days uh, after they were born, uh, any young boy. When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord. Now, the Jewish custom here that they're talking about with the purification rites, that's in Deuteronomy, and it talks about uh, after a Jewish woman gives birth to a child, they have to, a, a waiting period, a time, uh, and they have to go through purification rites. But what you really need to know is it's now about 40 days. So Mary and Joseph take Jesus uh, to the temple 40 days after he's been born So there's Simeon in the temple, waiting, waiting for the Messiah, waiting for God to come and rescue him and all of God's people, to restore them back to a relationship uh, with God. And this whole idea of Messiah, Mashiach, in the Hebrew... It's this idea that God would come and send a rescuer, someone to restore the relationship. Messiah literally means a king. It's the last king of Israel because they had had a lot of kings and they were waiting for someone to come and rescue them again to restore that relationship with uh, them and with God. And this has been going on for hundreds, even thousands of years. It goes all the way back to the beginning of the Old Testament, Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Bereshit bara Elohim. In the beginning, God created. And God just spoke words. And as God spoke words, different things came out in all the creation. Light and land, waters and sea. Mountains and valleys. God just spoke everything into existence. And then God says, ah, this is really good. But I need to create an image bearer, someone who looks like me, someone who is in my image, to be a caretaker of all that I've created. So God gathers together the dust of the earth and and creates a man and he blows the breath of life into this man. God creates man and woman humankind. The Hebrew word is Adam, which literally means humankind. And they're to be caretakers. And they're to trust God in their caretaking of all of creation. But there's another creature that shows up very soon after God creates mankind and all of creation. And of course, it's the snake. And the snake dupes the man and the woman to not trust God, but to trust themselves. God gives them lots and lots of commandments to do whatever you want. Do, you can do this, you can do that, you can do this, you can do that, you can do this, you can do that. There's just one thing you can't do. And somehow the snake dupes Adam and Eve, mankind, into trusting in themselves that one thing that God says that they're not supposed to, uh, to uh, take, exa- uh, take, take advantage of. Sin comes into the world in that moment. And the relationship is fractured between God and humankind. So in this moment, as humankind says, forget you, God, we're doing our own thing. The relationship is separated. and They've got to figure out what they're going to do now. And so God says, I need you to leave. You cannot be in my presence. Because a holy God cannot be in the presence of sinful man or anything that is sinful and broken. Because God is good and faithful and holy. And so as man is walking out of the garden, out of this beautiful place that God has created, he says, before you go, I just want to let you know it's not always going to be this way. One day I will send another man to come and crush the head of the snake. It's this, this prophecy that one day the relationship will be restored. And this is referred to as the proto-evangelion. And I, I talked a little bit about this last Sunday for, uh, on uh, Christmas Eve. And proto means first, evangelion means good news. And so right away in Genesis 3.15 already, God is prophesying, telling the people that one day the relationship would be restored, even though in the moment the relationship is broken. So the God's story continues on and the people start to multiply and they gather together and they want to make a name for themselves in this place called Babel and so the sin just takes over and people are building themselves up over and over and over and God says ah this is not good and and God scatters them on the earth and even though God scatters them on the earth sin continues to take over and wickedness and evil continues to go over all the earth and God looks at the earth and says oh boy What a mess these humans have made of themselves and of my creation. And so God sends a flood to wash the earth, to wash the earth with water. He says, I'm going to just use Noah and his family to start over because there's so much evil and wickedness in this world that I have created. So the weight of the shoulders goes on Noah and his family to to figure it out. And of course, they don't do much better either. Things fall apart uh, under Noah and his family. Things get worse and worse. After time, all of a sudden, we, st- uh, we see in the pages of Scripture God's story. A guy by the name of Abraham and his wife Sarah step onto the stage of the book of, of, of God's story. And, and you might be wondering, is, is this the Messiah? Is this the one who's going to come and rescue God's people? And this is the age of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then they have uh, 12 children. So it's four generations of God's people. And over and over and over, we read about this covenant promise that God promises to his people, I will be your God, you will be my people, and we're going to live in relationship with one another. But it's still going to be strained because there is brokenness. There is still sin on the earth. And if you think that Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the 12 tribes or 12 sons, if their families were great, they were sinful people. They were liars. They were cheaters. They stole from one another. There were sex scandals. I mean, the the, the sin just continues to uh, reverberate throughout god's story and we keep wondering when is the messiah gonna come because god has created these people and invited these people into a special relationship and they continue to mess up the relationship and it continues to be broken abraham's family after some time ends up in egypt And at this point in time, God has indeed blessed them and their relationship, but they are still a mess. They're still sin. There's still brokenness. And so all of a sudden, we see this guy rise up. God says, I'm going to do something for my people because they are miserable. And then Moses steps onto the scene and we think, oh, maybe Moses is going to be the Messiah. Maybe Moses is going to be the one to rescue God's people. And in fact, God uses Moses to rescue the people, to set them free from slavery. And so Moses leads them out of Egypt, out of slavery, out into the wilderness. They go up to a mountain. And God says to the Israelites again, I will be your God, you will be my people, and I'm going to give you 16, uh, one, 613 different guidelines for how this relationship's going to look. We tend to focus on the top 10, right? The Ten Commandments. And God says, I'm going to be your God, you're going to be my people, and these are the, this is how it's going to work. And this is called the covenant relationship. And, then, and it goes really, really well for about 10 minutes. Because the Israelites say, yeah, we'll we'll sign up for that. We'll do that. But very quickly, sin continues to live in their hearts and they become very self-centered and they start worshiping other gods and doing what they want to do. And God says, because of your disobedience, you will not get to go into the promised land. So the story Moses ends with a kind of a downer, kind of a bummer of, you know, the disobedience of God's people. And they wait. They wait for a Messiah. When's the Messiah coming? And then we read about a guy by the name of Joshua. And God sends Joshua into the world to, to, to be a, a commander, a military guy, to, to lead the people into the promised land. They're going to get to go back to the Garden of Eden, if you will, because it's a land flowing with milk and honey. It's, it's very fertile land. And people are so excited. They're so hopeful. And they get to cross over the Jordan River and go into the promised land, this wonderful place where God will be their God and they will be God's people. And when they get there, they look around and they're like, ah, we want to be like the people who are living here. And they turn their backs on God yet again. And so God raises up different judges to rule over and to lead God's people as they're living in the promised land. And this goes on for years, for decades And it's this sin cycle that we've talked about many, many times. Where God comes, he hears God's people who have sinned. He rescues them and he brings them to a new place. He forgives them after they've repented. And then it just starts all over again. And this goes on and on and on. Pretty soon, God sends some kings to lead the people. And the people are like, oh, maybe this is the Messiah. Maybe the Messiah has come now. Is it Saul? Saul? Is it King David? Is it King Solomon? And Scripture tells us that the Messiah will be a king. So the, the people are very hopeful that maybe one of these kings will be righteous enough, will rescue the people once and for all. But these kings, they had great moments of faith. And they did great things. But most of the time they were sinful and self-centered. And they were in the midst of all the muck that the people were dealing with as well. And God sent them, because of their unfaithfulness, back to Babylon. Back into a place of slavery. And so then God would send different prophets. People like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel to speak truth to the people, to remind them and to invite them to come back to God. These are called major prophets. And then God sends some other prophets as well. They're known as minor prophets. And God would just use these people over and over and over. Some of them could perform miracles. And the people are like, oh, the Messiah. Are, are the prophets the Messiah? Are, 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 are one of these the one who is going to come and save us and restore our relationship with God? And time after time, these prophets, they were both truth tellers and foretellers about the future and this invitation to come back. But they were not the Messiah. Then along came Daniel. And he was performing miracles and he was doing great things. And people wondered is Daniel the Messiah? Is he the one who has come to restore us in our relationship with God? And Daniel spoke these words of hope. These words of one day the relationship will be restored again. And then Daniel steps off the scene. A few more prophets come and go and invite the people to hang on in faith and hope. And so people are waiting. People are waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. For the messiah to come someone who will come and restore the relationship between god and god's people so 500 years after daniel was on the scene approximately jesus shows up and is born in bethlehem most people were not aware of jesus birth at the time Most people weren't even aware when Jesus showed up uh, for the circumcision, right? Forty days, 40 days have now passed since Jesus was born. Mary and Joseph take him about six miles from Bethlehem to Jerusalem. Moved by the Spirit, Simeon went into the temple courts. When the parents brought the child, Jesus, to, to do for him what the custom of the law required... Now, we know how the story goes. We know the story of Jesus. But I want to invite you to go back to that place of where Simeon is. He looks at this Christ child. He's holding Jesus in his arms, and he says, My eyes have seen the salvation of the Lord. Keep in mind, Jesus has not preached the Sermon on the Mount yet. Simeon never saw Jesus walk on water. Simeon never witnessed Jesus feeding 5000 people, yet he still believed. Simeon never saw Jesus heal a blind man born at birth. Jesus never uh, Je- Simeon never saw Jesus heal the paralytic, and yet he believed. Simeon never saw Jesus meet a woman at the well and love her with such extraordinary love and yet he still believed in this Messiah. Simeon never met Zacchaeus and the tax collector and the ways in which he invited him, this broken man, this cast out man into a relationship with Jesus. Simeon never saw any of that. Simeon never saw the woman caught in adultery and the ways in which he loved her and cared for her and just accepted her. See, we know these stories. These stories weren't written yet. These events hadn't happened yet. And I think it's amazing that Simeon could look at this child and say, my eyes have seen the salvation of the Lord. And he's just looking and a baby. I mean, this is the gift the Holy Spirit has given to Simeon. Simeon never saw or witnessed the day in which Jesus was arrested. Simeon never saw Jesus hanging on a cross to die. Simeon never witnessed Jesus rising from the grave. He didn't have the, the privilege to be able to see any of those things, and yet he still. Believed. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and the rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. Simeon knew that this child that he was holding would be the most polarizing figure in human history. And it was true. As Jesus walked on the earth, he, he was very polarizing. People either loved him or hated him. It's true today, too. Just talk to anyone in the public square about Jesus and you will get a reaction one way or another. Jesus continues to be a very polarizing figure in our world. And then, of course, he prophesies this child, Mary, he's going to break your heart. Fast forward 33 years, there's Mary standing at the cross as Jesus is dying. It would be like a spear going through her heart, going through her soul. This is all we know about Simeon. I think it's enough. Because I think the most important thing about Simeon in his life is that he is open. He is open. His eyes are open. His heart is open. His mind is open. Everybody's waiting. Many people have stopped waiting. But yet Simeon is open. He's expectant. And he's hopeful. He's waiting for the Messiah to come and rescue and restore the relationship You know, there's something about turning the clock from 2023 uh, to 2024, something about beginning a new year that makes us, invites us to be open, invites us to experience something new in our lives. Maybe you came to worship today, discouraged, frustrated, angry. Just hopeless. I know for some of you, 2023 was a hard year. Some of you lost loved ones. Some of you got a diagnosis. Some of you started a new job. Some of you left a job. Some of you experienced incredible brokenness in a relationship with a loved one. So we look at twenty twenty three. We come and we're just like, ah, oh, maybe that's why you're here. You need a new start. You want a new start. You want to be hopeful. You're not feeling hopeful. I got to be honest with you. That's that's kind of where I'm at. I want to be hopeful, but I look around at the world. I look around at our nation. I look in our own community. I, I'm not real hopeful. Just, just to be real honest with you, I'm not real hopeful. I don't like where we've been as a nation, as a community. I'm not real hopeful where we're going. So I've come to worship today open. and just really asking God to, to make me hopeful, to make me open to what God is going to do. I want to be like Simeon just God show up show up and do something in my life show up, show up and do something in this world show up and do something in our church help me to be open help me to be expectant Kevin Kelly is a uh, the editor of Wired Magazine. And uh, he was recently asked, I came across an article about why he stays hopeful, why he stays so uh, encouraged by what's going on and just enthusiastic about his work. And he says, I just live astonished. And that just really spoke to me. I love that. Living astonished. Looking at the world and being open to being astonished. Having new ideas being positive, being hopeful. A couple weeks ago, I talked about this new lens that uh, I've invited all of us to go on this journey in 2024. Of We're calling them God sightings or, or God stories. It's really this idea of looking around and see where the Holy Spirit is moving. We're not just going to see those stories and see how God is moving, but we're going to share those stories with one another. And I think this is going to be the challenging part for all of us. To see the stories and then to share the stories. Because I don't know about you, but my, my default is to, to see the mess, see the brokenness, and then gripe about it. Anybody else? But I've just decided for all of us that in 2024... In addition to seeing the mess, seeing the brokenness and griping about it, that we are going to see God moving and we are going to share with one another and we are going to celebrate uh, what God is doing in our midst. We're going to look around in our lives and in the world and we're just going to be looking for God, the Holy Spirit moving everywhere among us. And as we go through and read scripture, We're just going to invite the story, God's story, to just jump out uh, of the pages and just invite us to, to see God's presence moving, to see something new in God's story. Now, I know reading through the Bible in a year can be a little bit daunting. How many of you read through the Bible a couple of years ago when we did this? Just This is the audience participation part. Yeah. Many of you have read through the Bible, the entire Bible. It was kind of a big deal, right? Some of you, it was really challenging. I think most of us, if we're honest, we would say, that was kind of hard, right? And maybe as I've been talking about this the last couple of weeks, you're like, oh, I don't know if I want to do that again. That was hard. That was challenging, right? And so I want to encourage you that you can do it. I think each one of us can read through God's word this year. And let me just give you a little uh, illustration for how I think this happens for all of us. Probably four to five, maybe six days a week, I'm out on the Constitution Trail here, walking, biking, running, something or other. And most days when I'm out on the Constitution Trail, I'm just kind of looking around, seeing what's going on. And then uh, a couple months ago, I noticed this tree. It's like, oh, something took a whack at this tree. And uh, time went on, a couple more weeks. And as I'm running along the trail again, I'm like, oh, it's a beaver, right? It's really going after. But this went this this took months. For this to happen and i i don't know if beavers are nocturnal or what because i never saw the beaver um but i would just every day i would just see a couple more bites taken out of this tree you know and uh pretty soon after a couple more months uh i don't there's the 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 stump right there this took months and months and months of work of that beaver He didn't chop down that tree in a couple hours or a couple days or even in a couple weeks, but it took this beaver, I keep using the word he, I don't know if it was a he or not, maybe it was a she, but this beaver knocked down this tree and I think this is how we get at God's word, just a little bit every single day. Because I understand how thick, how dense, how full uh, scripture is. There is a lot in this. And we're not asked to read the entire scripture in one sitting or even in one day or one week. But we're going to take a year uh, to do this. We're going to go through it bit by bit. I've actually downloaded the uh, audio app uh, onto my phone. So I'm going to have the Bible in front of me. I'm going to follow along. But I'm also going to listen to it. And so... Um, I researched it. It's 12 minutes and 14 seconds a day. I mean, that sounds doable, right? And here's the cool thing if you download the, the, the Bible app is you can go into settings and you can speed it up. So if if, if you're like on a speed read, it, you could do it on average of six minutes and 14 seconds a day. I'm not recommending that. I'm just saying you can do that. Or if you're really slow like me, you can slow it down and uh, go down to like 24 minutes a day and listen to it that way as well. My point is there's lots of different ways for us to get at this. But the most important thing is that we do get at this. And we not just leave our scripture, our Bibles on the shelf and go on about our lives, doing what we do, but really inviting God to speak to us. And so my encouragement for all of us in this new year, in 2024, like Simeon, that we just open our hearts, our lives, and say, God, speak to us. Show us what you're doing. Help me to live astonished. Help me to live hopeful. Help me to live expectantly. And I believe that if we live our lives this way in 2024, God is going to show up and do what only he can do, and we will experience Christ day in and day out. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for this man, Simeon, who by all accounts, did nothing extraordinary for you, but he was open. He was expectant. He was hopeful that you would come the person of the Messiah and restore that relationship. And God, because you have restored that relationship, we can experience joy in our lives. Regardless of the circumstances in our own lives or in the world, joy has come. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer.